Joshua chapter 6, verse number 1. Now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, and none came in. And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given into thine hand Jericho, and the king thereof, and the mighty men thereof, valor. And ye shall compass the city, all ye men of war, and go round about the city once. Thus shalt thou do six days. And the seven priests and seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets, trumpets of ram's horns. And the seventh day ye shall compass the city seven times, and the priests shall blow with the trumpets. And it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when ye hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat. And the people shall ascend every man straight before him. And Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said unto them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said unto the people, Pass on and compass the city and let him that is armed pass on before the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass when Joshua had spoken unto the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns passed on before the ark before the Lord and blew with the trumpets and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them and the armed men went before the priests that blew with the trumpets and the rearward came after the ark the priests going on and blowing with the trumpets and Joshua had commanded the people saying ye shall not shout nor make any noise with your voice Neither shall any word proceed out of your mouth until the day, the moment, I bid you to shout. Then ye shall shout, shall ye shout. So the ark of the Lord compassed the city, going about once. And they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, went on continually. And blew with the trumpets, and the armed men went before them, but the rearward came after the ark of the Lord, the priests going on and blowing with the trumpets. And the second day they compassed the city once and returned unto the camp. So they did six days. And it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and compassed the city after the same manner seven times. Only on that day they compassed the city seven times. And it came to pass at the seventh time that the priests blew with the trumpets. Joshua said unto the people, shout, for the Lord hath given you the city. Skip down to verse 20 for the sake of time. So the people shouted with, when the priests blew with the trumpets. And it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout, the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city every man straight before him and they took the city and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city both man and woman young and old and ox and sheep and ass with the edge of the sword we'll stop reading there it is said that the slaves in the South prior to the Civil War were singing a song called Joshua Fit the Battle of Jericho. 
their words were something like this. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. Hallelujah! Well, over time, there were at least uh, ten or a dozen different verses to that <coughs> song, that gospel hymn, and I particularly like the second. You may talk about your man of Gideon, you can talk about your man of Saul, but they're none like good old Joshua and the battle of Jericho. Hallelujah! When I googled the song, just for background information, the third or fourth link came in the form of a question. This is in the Google references. Did Joshua fight the battle of Jericho? Well, the Christian would obviously answer, absolutely, it says so right here. We just read about it. Yes, he fought the battle of Jericho. But there's some interesting questions or considerations in that question. For example, can we really call it a battle? And then, if it was a battle... Was it really Joshua's fight? Who won? Who's the great victor? This is our 10th lesson in this series on practical faith. And for the most part, the examples of faith that we've looked at have been essentially defensive. We looked at Noah's Ark, which was built for the saving of that man's household. And Abraham's faith in leaving Ur and Haran was not in order to attack the people of Canaan. There was the faith of Abraham in sacrificing his son. There was the faith of Abraham sending his servant back to Haran for a son, for a wife for his son. The Exodus was an escape. It was not an attack per se. All of these required great faith. An absolute sacrifice of certain things and a trust in the Lord to accomplish certain things. The nature of our example this morning is slightly different from all of those earlier ones. Not only do we need to trust God for our defense in our illness, in our grief, trusting the Lord for protection or whatever, there are sometimes when we are asked to go into battle, sometimes we are called to be aggressive, to be offensive. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That is taking the offense. And in order to do that properly, we must trust God. Sometimes we must earnestly contend for the faith. Every Christian soldier who goes into battle in his own strength is going to find that the enemy is stronger than he is. We need the Lord in order to bring down the walls of Jericho. We need the Lord in order to bring down the walls of heresy. We need the Lord in order to bring the walls of defense that sinners create in order to keep God away. The Lord has to bring those walls down. We can't do it. What can we learn about faith by looking at Joshua's battle at Jericho? Consider first faith's object. In this case, Jericho. When Moses was nearing the departure of his life, standing at the top of Mount Nebo, 
He could look across the Jordan River and he could see the city of Jericho. At least once in the Bible, Jericho is called the city of palm trees for apparently apparent reasons, obvious reasons. Uh, it was located in the valley of the Jordan. It was sitting close to the foothills that led into the highlands where uh, eventually a visitor would go to Jerusalem or some of the other communities around there. Jericho is a wealthy community. It was on the border. They traded with the people of the east. They had excellent farmland. They grew great crops. There was plenty of water. They apparently dug wells. There was water within the walls of the city of Jericho. It was an important and well-supplied community. We in the 21st century look back on these things and we, we perceive places and events according to what we have experienced. What was the population of Jericho? I googled it. I have lots of library books, but uh, I googled it. And uh, the answer that generally came up was between two and 3,000 people. Now those two or 3,000 people, or shall we say uh, 1,000 families, 750 families, they didn't live in uh, 50 by 100 lots with grass around each of their houses. They were packed in pretty tight. That was just the way things were in those days. So what was the size of the city of Jericho? How many cubits of wall was there around the community? We don't know. What was the circumference? It could be circled seven times in a single day. So, according to our standards, it would be a small place, relatively small place. We're told that Jericho was straightly shut up, that it was tightly enclosed. There were, at this point in time, very likely guards on the roofs of the houses that were built into the wall around the community. There might have been a desire on the part of many Israelites just to say, why don't we just go around? They're all shut up. Why don't we just move on to the next battle and not risk our lives in fighting against Jericho? Isn't that the way many of us are? Well, I take that back. Isn't that the way I am? I got a problem here, I got a problem here. They might solve themselves. So let's just skip them, move on to something else, and hopefully we won't have to deal with this particular issue. But Jericho wasn't going anywhere. And encapsulating that city wasn't a good idea. It was a cancer. It was not a DVT. It is going to poison the people of Israel if something isn't done, and done very soon. But consider this. Jericho was not any worse or more wicked than any other Canaanite community. Mm. Paraphrasing the Lord Jesus, suppose ye that these Jerichoans were sinners above all the Canaanites because they suffered these things? I tell you, nay. 
But except ye repent, ye shall likewise perish. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwell in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay. But except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Luke chapter 13. The residents of Jericho were sinners already under the wrath of God like everybody else. Like everyone. The people of Jericho needed God's saving grace. Just the way I did, you did, you may still need. And by the way, they were savable people. Remember that one of their citizens, Rahab the harlot, had already been saved by God's grace. She humbled herself before the God of the Hebrews, and she was promised deliverance from the wrath which is yet to come. Another parallel with our salvation. And this is the first point where this history collides with our present reality. It is more our duty to rescue the Rahabs around us than it is to bring down the walls of Jericho. There are a lot of Baptist preachers, there are a lot of Baptist churches that put the walls of Jericho as more important than Rahab and the people inside. We need to maintain the right perspective. Yes, we are to earnestly contend for the faith. But perhaps the best way to do that is to go in there and speak with Rahab about the truth. And maybe if we get the king of Jericho to uh, repent and trust the Savior, maybe they'll just open their gates and, and no battle necessary. Keep first things first. Let's come to each and every evangelistic service in Calvary Baptist Church beseeching God and believing that God will once again Prove that the sinner's heart is in his hand and he can turn it whithersoever he chooseth. We need faith. We need to move forward trusting God for souls. As we're told, at this point in Joshua's service, he was considering the walls of the city. They looked indestructible. They looked like they could not be penetrated. He didn't have the military equipment to bring them down. He had no battering rams. He had no catapults to throw balls of fire over the walls, that sort of thing. He knew that God intended to give Israel this victory. But how to perform that which is promised is another matter. He knew not. So it was going to require faith on his part, on Israel's part, to bring the walls of Jericho down. And that brings us once again to faith's source. Israel had crossed the Jordan River and was now bivouacked in Gilgal, not very far away from Jericho. 
The spies had returned after their reconnaissance of the land and given their report to Joshua, and they did not have much in the way to share about the weaknesses of this particular city. What is Joshua going to do? For that, we go back to chapter 5. Shortly after the return of the spies... Joshua was out once again looking at the enemy city. Verse number 13. And it came to pass, when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And he said, Nay, but as the captain of the Lord of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship, and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. This paragraph is surreal. Joshua, I picture, looking down, perhaps praying. He had been surveying the walls and now his head is down. He's asking the Lord, what do I do about this? How do I take care of this? And then he looked up and there was a stranger standing in front of him. Where did he come from? I believe that he miraculously appeared there, but probably in the back of Joshua's mind, he said, boy, this guy's quiet. He just snuck right up there while I wasn't paying attention. He probably tried to explain away the sudden visitor. And the man had a sword drawn. But Joshua walked toward him anyway. Maybe Joshua had his sword drawn drawn as well, but uh, we have no account of that. What made him walk forward? And why did he expect an honest answer? Uh, Are you one of the good guys? Are you against us? And he expected this visitor to say, tell him the truth? Boy, this is just unbelievable. This This is strange. But the man wasn't a man at all. He declared himself to be the captain of the host, the captain of the army of Jehovah, of the Lord. Instantly, Joshua believed him. Again, why? How? It was because God put that into his heart. And when he was told to take off his shoes, he did so. And he fell down on the ground and he worshipped this man who was standing in front of him. He was not rebuked for doing it. Who was the captain of the host of the Lord? I am of the opinion, and I have no proof for this, but I join a great many others who say, this is the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Son of God. He is worthy of Joshua's worship and ours. 
Joshua immediately threw himself down in reverence and he wasn't rebuked. He wasn't corrected. He kicked off his shoes in the same way that Moses was told to remove his shoes when he was standing before the burning bush 40 years earlier. Then in the next chapter, we're told that Jehovah explained the battle plan. And that probably was during this conversation at the end of chapter 5. The faith which Israel will need to attack Jericho will come as a result of the words of the Lord. And that is precisely where our faith has to originate. There are religions under the umbrella of Christendom that have taken their major doctrines out of alleged special revelations and visions prophets and spirit guides and so on, with or without magic glasses. Those doctrines which don't come out of the word of God are not worth the paper they're printed on. But the word of God, the pages of God, are worthy of their weight in gold. Not the least of which the reasons for that value not the least of which is faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There are a great many things in the word of God. I started reading a book last night. It's a beautiful book. A pictorial history of the English Bible. And it's got lots of information. I've only gotten 30 pages into it. But he begins by casting a little bit of doubt on the origin of the word of God and despite its publisher and, and I, no, there, there's no doubt about where the word of God originated it came from the Lord we need to listen to what it says Joshua knew what was going to come to pass he knew what his job was in the battle of Jericho because God gave him directions. This is what you shall do. I long to see the Lord work among us. These are the last days. I want to see. I want to witness. I would like to say, I would like to experience. But I'd just be happy to witness the power of God. I need to increase and strengthen my faith. I know that the power of God, revival, souls, even faith, are gifts from the Lord. When it comes to strengthening our faith, I know that it must be from the Word of God. And this is why we are in the midst of this particular study. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Let's look at the faith of Gideon. Let's look at the faith of Joshua. Before we get to the Lord's plans, there's one little detail which may be extremely important. Just a sidebar, as people say these days. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or our adversaries? And he said, Nay, but as the captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. On whose side is God? Well, he's on our side. He's got to be on our side. He's always on our side. 
Did you know there were pr Germans praying during World War II for the blessing of God on their side? I won't say the Japanese were, but the Germans were. Can God be trusted? What if it's God's will that we be defeated? Can we trust God even in defeat? Are you on our side? Are you on their side? Jehovah is not the servant of man. Right. Not even the best or the purest obedience makes that so. Right. Right. The best servant of God is nothing more than that. God's servant. The Lord is most glorified when His servants do His will according to His plan. But the truth is, even when the wicked disobey God, God is glorified in that. Even in their defeat, He is glorified. And remember that Jehovah is God, and His purpose may include our defeat, or Israel's defeat at uh, Ai on up the road. That brings us to the plan. First, the Lord told Joshua to look by faith at the city of Jericho. And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given into thine hand Jericho, and the king thereof, and the mighty men of valor. Joshua had just been considering the city. And until that point, he could not see the walls and the sentries falling. It didn't look like Jericho, its kings or its mighty men, were defeated or surrendering. But now, at the command of God, he was to look again. And this time, with the eye of faith. Look, they're in your hands. It wasn't an exercise of mystical uh, visualization. It was a look built on a trust in God's promise. The Lord was saying, believe me, Joshua, I'm putting this city and its inhabitants into your hands. This was not easy, as I've been saying for weeks. But this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where academic, theological faith becomes practical, victorious faith. Those walls are coming down. Look at it, Joshua. See what I'm going to do. Let's trust God to march around this city, bring its walls down, rescuing repentant sinners like Rahab. The omnipotent God has saved and revived entire communities in the past, and he can do it again today. The problem is our lack of vision. Our problem is our lack of faith. The problem is we don't expect God to move, to do things. God obviously shared with Joshua the plan of attack. There's nothing necessarily wrong with having a pattern to follow and to do it. Noah was given a set of blueprints for the construction of the ark. The Exodus followed God's itinerary. The New Testament gives us a, a plan, a pattern for doing the work in these last days. It's called the book of Acts. The problem is that Christians have a propensity to create their own plans rather than submitting themselves to the plan that the Lord has established. 
I am bent in that direction. I like to have all the future ducks lined up so I can just follow duck after duck after duck. That's the way I live. That's not the way, that's not the way of faith. In this case, the plan began with the spiritual leaders of the nation. Four strong priests were once again to pick up the Ark of the Covenant using, the, uh, using two poles uh, looped through the rings at each corner of the Ark. After our lesson on the crossing of the Jordan last week, uh, I was talking to Mara and a couple of other people, uh, and the question was, how, long, how heavy was that Ark? How long did those priests have to stand in the bed of that river with that water towering over them and their shoulders getting more tired and more achy all the time? How heavy was the ark? Again, I did a little research from the internet and got such a variety of answers I don't have an answer for you. Some of them said it was 183 pounds, not 185, 183 pounds. Some of them went so far as to say it was 615 pounds. So I don't know, it's gold. Overlaid. Overlaid, but how well could they overlay things? How thick was it? We can today, I just don't know. But even if it was 183 pounds, those priests are carrying 50 pounds apiece on their shoulders. And it could be as much as 150 pounds. It was no easy task considering how many hours they were going to have to carry it and how far they would have to go. It's, it's a pretty good job. And by the way, under the Mosaic Law, it wasn't supposed to be the priests who were carrying the ark. According to the law, it was to be done by one branch of the Levites called the Kohathites after the priests had covered it and hidden it from people's eyes and whatnot. But this is a special occasion, and the Lord said, priests, you're good to do it. So the priests did it. Before the ark, there were seven priests blowing trumpets made out of ram's horns. Israel's military men may have marched in, in martial union, right, left, right, left, right, left. But then, too, there were all the wives and families, very young people, relatively old people. And despite the sound of the trumpets, Israel was not to be singing or even talking among themselves. They were not supposed to respond to the curses and the jeers that were being thrown to them from the men on the wall. They probably couldn't understand them anyway, but they could see the gestures and see the expressions. There was supposed to be perfect quiet, except for the sound of the trumpets and whatever sound the feet might produce. For six days, Israel was to circle the city once, but then on the seventh day, they were to do it seven times. And upon the completion of the seventh circuit, the command to shout would be given, And the voices of the people joined with the blast of the trumpets and the walls would fall flat. And that's what happened. That was the plan. Because Joshua had received it from the Lord and obeyed the Lord in passing those rules on to everybody else. I hope you can see the relationship between the fall of the city and the obedience of Israel. I also hope you can see the relationship between obedience and faith. 
or the faith of these people was a part of their obedience. We are never going to accomplish anything great for God until we do everything according to His will, trusting the Lord for the results. Both ingredients have to be there. Consider now more specifically faith's accomplishment, or excuse me, accompaniment. We'll get to accomplishment in a minute. The Ark of the Covenant should be considered as a symbol of the presence of God. That gold-covered box was certainly not the God of Israel. But from time to time, certain people said it was. That was idolatry. But the presence of the ark in the midst of Israel's perambulation around the city told Jericho that God was in all of this. He was going to keep his word. And even though the language of the chapter is confusing, uh, to me anyway, I believe that every man, woman, and child in Israel was a part of that parade. And I think that's important. There was unity in the congregation of Israel. I won't say that everyone had the same strong faith that uh, Joshua had. Some, like the small children, had no faith at all. But they participated nevertheless. It's like the memorial at Gilgal. Someday the children of Israel will see that cairn made out of boulders that were taken out of the, uh, uh, the river. And they will say, what is this? What does this mean? And they will be told, this is what God did when we trusted him. Maybe at Jericho, not everybody had a faith that was fully engaged in all of this. But later, after the walls come down, it will go down in history as the great victory of faith. And generations later, when there is no Jericho, or should be no Jericho, that all they see is the ruins of a place, maybe a... a <coughs> governmental marker that says Jericho used to stand here, they would say, ah, yes. And their faith would be stronger than it was at this point in time for some of those people. The third ingredient of this accompaniment was the sound of the trumpet. And again, I'm somewhat confused about the sound of the trumpets. Some statements seem to suggest that for the most part, they were quiet until the time to shout. Other verses seem to say that the trumpets were simply used to issue the command to move forward. Verse 8, it came to pass when Joshua had spoken unto the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns passed on before the Lord and blew the trumpets and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. And then there are other statements which seem to say the trumpets were being blown all the time throughout each of these journeys. In all of this, some people might be thinking, this is so ludicrous. This is so impossible. For example, verse number 10, And Joshua commanded the people, saying, Ye shall not shout, nor make any noise with your voice. Neither shall any word proceed out of your mouth until the day I bid you shout, and then ye shall shout. Pastor Oldfield, are you going to tell me that those mothers 
were able to keep all those babies quiet for all of that time. Come on. Get real. I'm not going to tell you that. I could say that God kept all of those babies quiet, but I'm not going to say that either. The truth is, I don't know for sure, but I will say this. That just as not everybody had the faith of Joshua, that everyone believed God the way he did, I won't say that there wasn't a peep out of any Israelite, but generally speaking, there was no speaking There was an effort to be obedient. And the mother whose child started screaming because he was late for lunch probably was embarrassed. But that didn't keep God from working. Even if there was an absolute silence, the Lord was pleased to bless the people's faith and their efforts at obedience. And then there was faith's great victory. Shout, for the Lord hath given you the city. We aren't told what sort of shout it was. It could have been a shout of attack, like the rebel yell. Or it could have been a shout of victory. Yay, we won. Or maybe it was just all sorts of noise. Doesn't matter. And the walls of the enemy fell down flat. They didn't crumble. They didn't fall inward. They didn't fall outward. They fell flat, as though they were turned into dust. Unbelieving critics of the Bible talk about the uh, earthquake fault lines that were all through that area. Some of them, some of them talk about the, st- the marching of feet, 500,000 feet, all in unison, and how dangerous that can be to a bridge, for example. That had nothing to do with this. This doesn't explain Jericho. This was the, if you permit me, the feet of God, not the feet of man. It was granted because Joshua believed God and it was accounted unto him for victory. The enemy city fell and the believers inside were executed just as unbelievers will be condemned and executed at the great judgment of God. But Rahab was saved, just as Joshua promised. And by the way, the name Joshua is the Hebrew equivalent of Jesus in the New Testament. I know it's not the same thing, but you could say that Jesus kept his promise to save Rahab, the sinner. John Bunyan wrote more than one great story. His most famous, of course, is Pilgrim's Progress. One of his other books is called The Holy War, and it features a community called Man's Soul. I won't make a complete comparison between Bunyan's story and what we're talking about, but there is a war which is being waged for men's souls. And most of our neighbors have built walls around their souls Mm -hmm. to keep Jesus, to keep Joshua and his people out. You and I are not going to be victorious against those cities 
without the blessing of the captain of the host of the Lord. There's a sense in which we need to be spiritually aggressive. We need to be on the offensive with the sword of the Spirit and the gospel of Christ. But again, it's not by our strength, our wisdom, our psychology, our oratorical skills that sinners will surrender to the Holy Spirit. We must have the blessing of God. And that means he must increase, I must decrease. It means that we need to approach our targets in faith, trusting the Holy Spirit to bring down the walls of opposition.